Amen, amen. Y'all can go ahead and be seated, and as you're seated, go ahead and take out your Bibles. We are continuing our series through the Minor Prophets, and we have passed beyond halfway. We are in the book of Habakkuk, and if you're like me, you don't know where that's at, but if you were in here last week, or not last week, the week before last, we were in the book of Nahum, and we finished it. The next book is Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Habakkuk. While y'all are turning to the book of Habakkuk, let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Father, we, we do. We come before you, Lord. Um, Father, there's joy in your presence. You cast out all fear. And we don't have to be afraid when we're in your presence, Father God, for those who have been redeemed by your son are welcomed in your presence, Father God. You're delighted when we come into your presence. Father, we want to sit at your feet as we open up your word. We ask that you would speak it to us. Not just so that we hear your word, Father God, but we ask that you speak it to us, that we would understand your word. And Lord, give us the courage and the strength to hear and understand and obey your word, Father God. Help us to see all that you have before us as we turn to the words of your prophet. The words he spoke long ago, Lord, they're, they're no less true today just because of how long ago they were. But Father, I believe that you want to speak the same truth to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Habakkuk, if I had to put a theme to it, it would be perplexed faith perplexed faith. You see, Habakkuk, he was a late 7th century prophet. That, pra that, place, that places him pre-exilic time period. That means before the Israelites were exiled, before Jerusalem finally fell to the Babylonians, you have the prophet of Habakkuk. He is post-northern kingdom. So Assyria has already taken out the northern kingdom. And now you have the prophecy of Habakkuk. Between Nahum and the prophet, the next one that we'll look at after Habakkuk is Zephaniah. And so he's also a contemporary of another well-known prophet, Jeremiah. It's likely that Habakkuk knew a young Daniel and Ezekiel. Now the prophet doesn't state his age. He doesn't list any of the Judean kings. The only way that we can place his book within the span of time is using the Babylonian invasion as a point of reference and the lack of mentioning of Jerusalem's fall, which would have been a major event that would have been noted. That happened in 586 BC. So we know Habakkuk was sometime between the Babylonian invasion and the fall of Jerusalem, which happened in 586 BC. It's likely that his life and ministry extended from Manasseh's reign to the rule of Zedekiah, which is Judah's last king. Now Habakkuk, he lived during turbulent times. It was turbulent in the sense of political realm, and it was turbulent in sense of the spiritual sense. And so we can probably relate to that a little bit, of the turbulent times. You see, he, he witnessed the invasion of the Babylonian armies. He witnessed Judah's fall from that spiritual revival that happened under King Josiah to the depths of spiritual depravity that happened under Josiah's son, Jehoiakim. The name Habakkuk is derived from a Hebrew word that means to embrace and so his name likely means he who embraces or he who clings. And I find that very fitting when we consider that Habakkuk's theme is on perplexed faith because he embraces or he clings to his faith, though wrestling and grappling with difficulties and tough, perplexing questions. Habakkuk 
teaches us that our faith is perplexing. We may have questions that seem to have no answer, questions that seem to contradict what we know is true. But we have to cling to our faith through that perplexity. And I find that the theme verse of Habakkuk would be in the last chapter, and it would be verses 17 and 18 of the last chapter. It says, though the fig tree does not bud, and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stall, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. To paraphrase that, he's saying, though everything else is coming apart, though everything else is empty, though everything else is devoid of all that it should be, he says, I will celebrate in the Lord. And I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk is a prophet who clings to his faith no matter the perplexing circumstances. And so as we turn to Habakkuk chapter 1, the title for the message today is we're going to look at what are these perplexing problems? What is it that perplexed Habakkuk in his walk? Now, I don't have to tell you this. We all can see it. The world is unraveling, right? Did you know that scripture told us that the world would be unraveling? I don't say that just because of the way things are going, but literally the Bible describes that the world is coming apart. It is winding down. Paul in Romans chapter 8 describes it as the world is groaning under the weight of all the corruption. It is groaning as it waits for the Savior, as it waits for things to be made right. The end of all things is at hand. We've been in a time that is known as the last days for quite some time. And the Bible describes the last days. The Bible describes how it all ends. It ends in calamity. And we're talking about the world as a system here. We're talking about the world and all of its values, the world and all of its hopes, the world and all of its dreams apart from God. That's all going to come crashing down. Most of us who've been in the faith for a, a while, or most of us who've heard it preached, is, and the rest are soon going to understand that, but most of us know that Jesus is coming back. We long and we wait for that day. We look for that glorious day. He is coming back, and he promised he would come back. When he said, I go and I prepare a place, and if I go and prepare a place, that means I'm coming back for you so I can take you and you can be there where I am. And so first he's going to come back and he's going to snatch out the church in what is known and in what is taught as the rapture. You can read all about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 all the way through 18. After the rapture of the church, there's a period of time in prophecy known as the Great Tribulation. Now many may have the wrong idea that just because they're Christian, that our lives are going to be without trouble because we're going to be raptured before the great tribulation. We're only going to know peace. We're only going to know tranquility. It's that weird mixture that has happened between the American dream and receiving Jesus Christ, where if you receive Christ, all of a sudden you're going to have the American dream, a house with a white picket fence, 2.5 kids, a, a little puppy dog, and two cars in the driveway, and, and all of your problems will just vanish. Now, the Bible teaches, we as the church, we will not go through the tribulation, period. Why? Because that is God's wrath poured out upon the earth, and we are not appointed to wrath. But the Bible also teaches that as Christ's church, we are under the wrath of Satan and his kingdom. And so in this life, prior to that great tribulation, we will experience tribulation. But those tribulations that we experience, that lowercase t. It's a lowercase t. Like those problems are small compared to what's coming. And Jesus, in the gospel of Mark, he says, many will come in my name saying, I am he. They will deceive many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must 
take place. But it is not yet the end. Okay, so we're going to go through wars and rumors of wars. Lots of them. We've gone through a lot of them already. There's more coming. Then he describes it. He says, nation will rise up against nation. And here's what's interesting about that. The Greek word for nation is the word ethnos. Ethnicity will rise up against ethnicity. Which, if we're paying attention, we're seeing that happen. It's been happening. And then it says kingdom against kingdom. Now that's what we know as nation. Kingdom against kingdom. Then it says that there's going to be earthquakes in various places. There's going to be famines. And what does Jesus say? These are the beginning of birth pains. Birth pains, they're called. So though we won't enter into the tribulation capital T, we must be prepared that we are living in this age which will know these birth pains. And in this day, we may see tribulation like we haven't seen yet, but it is not yet that time. Nationally, internationally, globally, we're going to see all sorts of crazy things, and we're already seeing it, right? We see disturbing ideologies, false religion heresies. We, we have the uprising of the Jehovah's Witnesses. We have the Mormonism being uh, peddled out there, the prosperity gospel that is ruining people's faith, the word of faith movement, the emergent church, and uh, its younger brother, the progressive church, inclusivism open theism, liberalism. We're seeing it. It's out there. Other disturbing ideologies would be communism, modernism, postmodernism. Do you know that they consider that we live in a society known as post-truth? Look all around. God made me a mistake. I'm not the gender that I should be. Just because you were born a boy doesn't mean you're a boy. That's the world's ideology. We're in a post-truth. We don't care about truth. We care about how we feel. But God says for the Christian, we should care about truth. We're we're seeing a, a rise in supremacy. Not just white supremacy. We're seeing a supremacy amongst all ethnos. Feminism. Feminism movement we, we may think it's a thing of our time, but it's actually been happening since Jesus' time. There was a feminist movement in Jesus' time. And I already said gender dysphoria. We're, we're, we're seeing the uprising of gender dysphoria. Why is there a greater amount of people claiming to have gender dysphoria? Is it because all of a sudden it's no longer a stigma, or is it because all of a sudden we're teaching kids that they're a mistake? We see universal violence. It happens around the world. There's not a single nation that is safe from violence. Terrorist attacks happen across the globe. Mass shootings are happening at a more rapid pace, especially here in the U.S. Abortions. We may may think that there was a a huge victory in Roe versus Wade, but that wasn't necessarily a huge victory. That just uh, took away the federal oversight of it. The federal saying, oh yeah, it's okay. Now it goes back to states' rights. We have a state right next door to us that is opening up all of its doors to accept everybody from around the country for that. But we're not the only nation that does that. That happens around the world. We're seeing shifting world powers. We used to be a super world power. No longer are we. The geopolitical stage, it's awash with anti-Christian nation states. They're seeking dominance. Russia, it once was a crippled world power. Look at where they're at now. They're increasing and, and they're exerting worldwide influence. China's size, China's increasing strength. It's threatening Western powers on all fronts. We're in an age where knowledge and information are power. Cyber warfare is at its height. Who's going to rise up out of the Middle East. Can Western influence stem the tide of oppressive militant regimes? Even when they have birth rates that far exceed our own? What's going to be the picture of the world's superpowers in 25, 50, or even 75 years? Whether we live through God coming to judge in that tribulation period with pestilence, famine, and war, 
we are going to experience our own private tribulations. We all know what it is to have financial problems. We all know what it is to experience heartache and sorrow. We've all experienced sickness and trouble and distress. And if we aren't understanding truth, and if we aren't careful, when trouble comes, we're going to cry out for rescue and for God to do something. And when God doesn't, we're going to stand on the precipice of stumbling and falling. Picture it. You're, you're, you're hurt. You're sick. Or maybe someone else close to you is hurt severely or sick severely. And you're praying. You're asking God to do something. You're asking God for a specific type of healing. And you're going to become perplexed. And it's in that perplexity that we have to cling to God. And we have to cling to our faith in him. Because sometimes he doesn't answer our prayers the way we want him to. Sometimes he doesn't heal our loved ones or ourselves or like we want him to. You know, it used to be the greatest resistance to faith was people had trouble trusting and believing the Bible. It was a fight between science and the Bible, but as science and the Bible come together more in agreement, as we learn more and more, now the trouble becomes history. If God is God, how can the news be what it is? Why is there war? Why is there just rampant crime? Why are there rapes? Why is there strife? Why is there murder? Why is there hunger? Why is there oppression? Well, Habakkuk is going to show us that even in the darkest times, God is still God. He's on his throne in heaven. He remains in control. And we have to cling to him with perplexed faith. For he cares for you and he has a plan for you. Starting in Habakkuk 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, it says the pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw, how long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing. Conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded. For I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than the leopards, more fierce than the wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles, swooping to devour all of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They're guilty. Their strength is their God. Are you not from eternity, Lord my God, my Holy One? You will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil and you do not tolerate wrongdoings. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? You have made mankind like the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them all up with a hook, catch them in their dragnet and gather them in their fishing net. This is why they are glad and rejoice. This is why they sacrifice their, to their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things, their portion is rich and their food plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net, continually slaughter nations without mercy? Intense. 
Habakkuk opens up with some puzzling questions. This is what perplexes our faith. The questions that Habakkuk raises, if we're honest, are all the same questions that we have at one point or another or will yet come to. See, the pronouncement from Habakkuk is a weighty one. That word pronouncement can also be translated burden, which we know that most of the prophets, their message was a burden. The word pronouncement is also masa, and it means to lift up. It was his lifting up of that burden. Habakkuk saw a vision. It was heavy, and that vision brought Habakkuk questions. Here's some of the questions that he had. Of course it doesn't show up. Bah. <laughs> All right, let's look at verses 1 and 2. He says, the pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw, how long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. His first question is, why is God indifferent? It's the same question we ask. Why doesn't God care? Why is he indifferent? He says, Lord, how long? He says, how long must I call for help? And you do not listen. He says, I see what's going on around, and I see what's going on in this nation, and I see what's going on in my community around me. I see what's going on in my neighbors. And I call out for help, but no help comes. It's as if, God, you are not listening. Why, God, do you not hear me? Why, God, do you not help me? These questions of how long are in an indication of the agony of the period of waiting. The endless delay for help and for the answer. How many of us have ever been in that situation where our heart says, how long, Lord? How many times do I have to come to you? How long will I have to pray for this? How long do I have to ask for this? Why is there no help coming? Why does it seem he's not listening? Why does it seem he's not answering when we pray, when we call? Doesn't the Bible say that God answers all prayer? Why isn't he answering mine? In Psalm 13, 1 through 4, it says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me and answer Lord, my God, restore brightness to my eyes. Otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have triumphed over him and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. The psalmist here is David. He asked the same questions. Asaph, Psalm 74. Why have you rejected us forever, God? Why does your anger burn against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you purchased long ago and redeemed as the tribe for your own possession. Remember Mount Zion where you dwell. Now, these are two examples. And like David and Asaph, there's others recorded in Scripture. And there's many who weren't recorded at all. And if we're honest, there's many of us here today that wrestle with those same questions. Habakkuk sees the injustice. He sees the troubles of him and his people all around. And he says, how long and why? Why does it go on? He says, I cry out. Literally, I scream with a loud voice and a disturbed heart. 
This is one who sees the injustice and it breaks their heart and they cry out for it because they know that God is a God of justice. And so they cry for justice. The wickedness in the land is burdening Habakkuk more and more. And it seems that God is just indifferent to it all. It brings Habakkuk to go, why does he not save us? You see, the concern is not only that his cries and his calls are going unanswered and unheeded, but he also has concern that the corruption continues. He says, oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing. Conflict escalates. Evil summed up as violence and oppression going on. Why do we see trafficking? Why do we see kids being used and abused the way that they are? Job says, I cry out violence, but get no response. I call for help, but there is no justice. Why is God indifferent? Habakkuk also answers, asks, why is God inactive? Sin is abounding and God not only seems indifferent to it, but he's also idle. He's not doing anything. He says, why do you force me, God? He's blaming God. He's saying, why do you force me to look at injustice? And then he presents an even greater question. He says, why do you, God, tolerate wrongdoing? Habakkuk says God is not only causing him to look at injustice, but that God is tolerating injustice. We can understand people tolerating sinful behavior, but a holy and righteous God seeing evil and doing nothing about it, that goes beyond our comprehension. That goes beyond our understanding and faith. Yet strife is ongoing. Violence are right in front of me, escalating. He lives in a culture that is not ashamed of their iniquity. They celebrate it with much pride. Does that sound familiar? Because we live in the same kind of generation. We are witness to the same depravity of men. And by men, I mean all mankind. The same celebration of such depravity. And we cry out and we call out and God hasn't stepped in and God hasn't stopped it yet. And that seeming unanswered cry for help brings perplexing problems to our faith. And maybe we like Habakkuk declare this, the law is ineffective and justice is never seen. And it's because of this. The Lord is the only one who can fix it. But he hasn't yet. The wicked are in power. The wicked are running the the justice systems and they're the ones writing the laws and, and they're restricting the righteous. And so justice that comes out isn't justice, it's perverted. When one's faith is in God and in his sovereign control, we can't help but look around and say, God, why do you allow this? Where does God allow us to see iniquity? He allows us to see it in ourselves and he allows us to see it in others. And I believe there are several reasons why God might do this. Number one, it keeps us humble. Number two, it makes us truly see the wickedness of sin that we would hate it and that we would fight it in and around us. And number three, it's to make us value and admire the grace and salvation from God toward us all as sinners. while Habakkuk is wrestling with these questions. And these are supposed to be rhetorical questions. But what we see in Scripture is that God gives an answer. God gives an answer. Look at verse 5. He says, this is God answering. He says, look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded for I, God, am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. 
Look, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories, not its own. They're fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than the wolves of night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles, swooping in to devour. All of them do come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They're guilty. Their strength is their God. This is how God responds to Habakkuk's questions. I'm, for one, I'm grateful that he did this. And I'm also grateful that scripture chose to record this. Because it turns out this, that God is neither indifferent, nor was he inactive. See, even when we can't see it, God is working. God's not idle. In fact, he's already working to bring about the discipline. He was already at work bringing about the discipline for the nation of Judah. And he reveals this to Habakkuk. He says, look at the nations and observe. And the words in Hebrew are plural. And they indicate not only a change in speaker, that's how we know that it's God speaking, but that also it, it, that the speaker is speaking not only to Habakkuk, but to the people. That he's not only speaking to Habakkuk, but he's speaking to us. And I think that God is revealing this. Sometimes in our problems and in our perplexed faith, maybe we're too me-oriented. You see, Habakkuk and Judah are both being nearsighted and self-centered in considering God to set things right. And God is saying, stop being so focused on yourself and you'll see the bigger picture. You see, God says, look at the nations. Don't just look at Israel. He says, look at the nations. The developments coming politically and nationally would be from the nations. When we're perplexed in our faith, when we're perplexed in our walk with God, perhaps the problem is our worldview is too small. Maybe God isn't just about the nation of America. God is saying that their worldview to understand what God is doing has to include the nations. I guarantee you there is not a nation on earth right now that God says, I don't care about them. I, I don't have, a, I don't have they, they don't fit into my plan. God says he's doing something in their days that they would not believe when they hear about it. Now this is news, it's not, you ever hear that news, it's too good to be true? That's not this news. This news is, it's too terrible to be true. Because it's a work of judgment that's causing them to have a hard time to believe it. God is planning to discipline the nation of Judah and their wickedness and their evilness by using another nation that's even worse? How is that justice? God drops the bombshell. He says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Now, granted, sin in Judah is going, it, it's abounds and it's unchecked. But the Babylonians, they're the epitome of wickedness evil, paganism, and anti-God action. There are people without remorse. There are people without forethought to the, committing atro the atrocities that they're committing. And God even admits as much. He describes them. He says they're a bitter and impetuous nation. And here's their description. Babylon, without rival. They're a law unto themselves. For they answered to no one. They promoted themselves. They recognized no law or judge other than themselves. The Lord describes their swiftness and speed. They were ready to devour. They were ready to conquer. It says they come with a determination. And with that determination comes success in their conquering. He's, 
describes their confidence. They're confident in their own strength. They mock kings and rulers, laughing at supposedly fortified cities, easily conquering, ravaging the most of the fortified cities. Their strength is their God. They are the first of might is right. And then might becomes divine. Now, maybe we're like Habakkuk. Maybe we hear that answer and instead of answering, we're perplexed with God's answer. Has God ever answered a prayer for you that left you more confused than when you started? I think he does that because he is a God that is beyond our ability to fathom what his mind is considering. He says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. So in Habakkuk 1.12, Habakkuk comes back to the Lord. He says, are you not from eternity, Lord, my God, my holy one, you will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment, my rock. You destined them to punish us. He says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? You've made mankind like the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them all up with a hook, catch them in their dragnet and gather them in their fishing net. That is why they are glad and rejoice. That is why they sacrifice their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things, their portion is rich and their food plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? When God answers, but the answer provides more questions. Why use people more sinful? How can God endorse people of injustice? Why would God excuse their own idolatrous sin while yet punishing Judas? Habakkuk knows that God is now going to exercise discipline and judgment, but now he's troubled by the agents of God's discipline. And as much as, if not more than, Judah's need for discipline and for God to set things right. Now, now he knows that God's going to set things right with Judah, but he's like, how is that setting it right? The Babylonians are more sinful than Judah. We, we cry out for the direction of the state of things in America. The church prays and cries out, says, God, come set things right. Perhaps God will do that by sending a nation or even an ideology that's more wicked. Perhaps it's through the liberalism, through communism, through wokeism. Cause us to cry out, wait a minute, Lord, your cure is worse than the disease. And people who face crisis times like these the wrong way, they will withdraw from church, they will withdraw from fellowship, and they will either pull back into a comfortable spiritual corner or they will give up on God altogether. You see, God had given Habakkuk a revelation of what was to come. Not an explanation. And sometimes that's the way God answers us. He gives us a revelation and it's not an explanation because God doesn't have to explain himself. See, what we need in times of perplexing problems is not an explanation. We need a revelation of God to give us a better view of him. I think it was Building 429 had an awesome song called Revelation. And he's talking about the problems he's going through. And, and his cry out to the Lord is, he says, give me a revelation so that he can walk through it. And that's what we need to walk through those perplexing problems is we need a revelation, a, 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 a new revealing of God's character to ourselves. Not that God's gonna reveal himself to be something new necessarily, but sometimes our hearts close off to considering all the facets of God. 
all the sides of God, all the character of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones guides with a better response of walking in perplexed faith. Number one, he says, stop to think. Before talking about it, think about it. He says, restate basic principles. As you think about the problem, don't begin with the problem. Go back further to basic principles about God and his dealing with man. We see this with Habakkuk. He says, are you not from eternity, Lord my God? He's saying, are you not the eternal God? He says, my holy one, you will not die. He says, you appoint them to execute judgment. He calls him my rock. He says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And so he's understanding, he's going back, who do I know God to be? Because sometimes the perplexing problems in our faith is because we forget who God is. Then we take those principles about God and we apply those principles to the problem. And now when you think about your problem in light of those principles, you know what happens? It's our perspective that changes. Because if you focus on your thumb too closely, you can blot out even the glorious star known as the sun that lights up the whole world. In the same way that if you focus too hard on your problem, you can blot out the holy and eternal God who that problem is not a problem for. And so then you need to commit the matter to faith in God. Whether you know what to do or not, that's going, man, I don't see God working. I don't know if God's working, but you know what? I'm going to have faith that God is working because I know who God is. Habakkuk saw God's revelation as more perplexing than relieving, and it seemed inconsistent. But the prophet knew that in this crisis time of perplexing problems, seeming to conflict with faith, he knew he had to focus on God and his character. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, Men of faith are always the men who have to confront problems. If you're going to trust and believe in God, you're going to wonder why he allows certain things to happen. And I want to give you a little bit of freedom in those questions because I believe that God wants us to have this freedom and to understand this. It is okay to doubt. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. You see, the doubter wrestles with God, but doesn't abandon him. But the unbeliever has abandoned and altogether ignores God. Unbelief is an act of the will. While doubt is born out of a troubled mind paired with a broken heart. We doubt because things happen that bring us into conflict but it's okay to doubt as long as it doesn't drive you from God. Habakkuk was perplexed. Wickedness and violence seems to go unchecked. Is there no end to the rising tide of evil and sin? Habakkuk takes his complaint to the one who can do something about it. How many times do we take our complaint to someone who can't do anything about it? We need to take it to the one who can do something about it. And he essentially says, why don't you do something? And God's response added to his perplexity. He says, I am. But what I'm doing, you will not understand, nor will you believe it. Now, as I started off, one of the modern Christian myths is that when you give your life to Jesus, you don't have any problems. You don't have any troubles. And that even goes further. If you really believe in Jesus, you won't have any doubts and you won't have any questions. And there are many people who are imprisoned in that lie and they're afraid to admit that they struggle, that they question, that they doubt. Because if they do that, then someone's going to say, well, maybe you're not really saved. 
And then that's when the bigger questions come, and that's when people start deconstructing their faith because someone taught them that they can't question God. And so they start to ask, here's the doubts that start coming. Why do good people suffer? Why does evil prosper? Why isn't God answering? How come I serve the Lord, but yet I still experience suffering and problems? Why? The Christians who claim to be problem-free or that you shouldn't have any problems, they're not telling the truth of what they're going through. They're not handling it truthfully. And there have been many recently who have made a public statement to say they're walking away from their faith. And they say the number one reason why they walk away from their faith is because their church, their pastor, their reading of the Bible, they never confronted the problem of evil in this world and they don't know what's going on with it. I don't want it to be so for us. Evil is in this world. God hasn't taken care of the evil yet because when he takes care of it, he's going to do it all at once, all for once. In the meantime, he's provided his son on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins that we might find salvation and forgiveness. Like Job's friends, those who say you cannot ask questions, they are miserable comforters. Those walking in faith ask questions like Habakkuk did. Ask questions like David did. Ask questions like Jesus did. David, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? Jesus on the cross, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Habakkuk, how long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Habakkuk teaches us not to be that believer that says, I don't have problems and you shouldn't either. I don't have questions and you shouldn't either. As we look out and we survey the scene around us, we're going to be faced with serious problems that may perplex us. How can evil like that happen to children around us? Does it mean that there is no God? No, it means we live in a sinful world completely consumed with the depravity of men. Before we're ready to listen to God's encouraging reply, we have to pause and examine our own hearts. Are we fully yielded to God and willing for him to have his way with us and with those whom we love? There's nothing wrong with wrestling with the problems of life and seeking a better understanding of God's will, but we also have to be careful lest we start debating God, trying to change his mind or trying to say, well, if I was God, I wouldn't do it that way, as if we were better than God. We admire Habakkuk for being an honest man, wanting God to spare the people he loved. Wanting, we want to imitate him in his openness and his sincerity and his willingness to wait for God's answer. But we also want to remember what Paul wrote to the believers in Rome. Romans 11:33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him, we are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We're going to partake of communion. And this is one of the most perplexing things about our faith. That someone innocent should die for those who are guilty. One who had never sinned took on all sin. Why is it we can readily accept that without questioning God on it? But we want to question on other things in such a way that we can't just leave it to God and go, I'm confused by this. 
but I trust you, God, because you sent your son to die for me. Obviously, he has a plan. I'm going to ask if a couple of guys can help me out handing out the communion. Uh, Alex and Mike, if you could give me a hand. Cool thing is we have a small, small group here this morning. All I ask is as they hand it out, you guys go ahead and uh, hold on to it. We'll partake together and just be in an introspective attitude. problem of sin in this world, yet by the birth, the life, and the death of Christ, we see that God was always enacting his plan. God was not inactive. He was not, in, he was not idle, and he was not indifferent, but working, working to execute his plan of salvation. And right now, it seems like he's indifferent. But we're told that he is not slack concerning his promise, as some consider slackness, but that he is long-suffering and patient that all would come to salvation. I'm not saying that all will come to salvation, but God is patient to wait until that time of salvation is fulfilled. And today is the day of salvation, and now is the time of salvation. And so... We take communion to remember that. We take communion to remember the sacrifice that was made for us through Christ's death on the cross. And so Paul, when he was initiating communion with the early church, he said, for I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take. And as often as you drink it, and as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And he is coming again. Even if we don't see him working if we don't see him moving we know that he is heavenly father we come before you this morning lord and we just thank you father i thank you that you include prophets and their writings but father i also thank you that you include their their questions their struggles father god because they're so similar to our own and what a refreshing thing to remember that even when we don't understand what's going on even when we don't know what's going on, we know the God who's in control of it all because you've re revealed yourself to us. Help us to cling to you when our faith is perplexed. In Jesus' name, amen.